0: This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org software. Developers, are you ready? It's time to upgrade your data platform to InnerSystems IRIS. Choose your language. Choose your tools. Choose your environment. Collaborate, build faster, and deploy more efficiently. When you can make faster decisions, there's no telling what you'll create. Ready, set, code. Start coding for free. Visit innersystemscom slash try to try IRIS.
1: Welcome to Software Engineering Radio, I'm your host Gavin Henry, and today my guest is Bert Hubert. Hello. Hi Bert. Um, Bert has had a 20-year track record in commercial and open-source software development. He's the author of the open-source PowerDNS name server, which powers around 50% of all internet domain names in Europe. Bert is active in the IETF and works on the standardization of DNS. Bert, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Is there anything I missed in your bio that you'd like to add? Uh, No, this was good. Excellent. Um, During the show, we'll be talking about DNS security in general, with the second half of the show talking about DNS over HTTPS, or more commonly known as DOH. However, I'd like to start with an overview of DNS. So, what is DNS in its basic
2: form? We, We used to be able to say that, look, DNS is like the phone book of the internet. Uh, it's no longer working because younger people have never seen a phone book. Uh, so it's become easier to say that the phone book is like sort of DNS of telephony. Whenever you, you you type in a name on the internet, computers cannot directly connect to names. They connect to IP addresses, IPv4, IPv6. And DNS sits uh, between you and the IP addresses. So whenever you want to connect to a website, uh, your computer needs to look up uh, what is the IP address of that website and uh, DNS provides that. And in addition to that, it's not just IP addresses for uh, website visits. DNS also tells you where the mail server for a domain is located, uh, for example. So without DNS, uh, we like to summarize it uh, over at PowerDNS, that without DNS, there is no internet. And if your DNS is slow, then your internet is is slow. And if your DNS is sort of um, working so-so, then your whole internet experience will be so-so.
1: Okay, so what is the current protocol... What does it look like?
2: Oh, that's a good question. So it is an old protocol. So the, the first roots of DNS go back to like 1983 or something like that. And it was influenced by Pascal, uh, which is a programming language. Which was was sort of popular uh, in academia at the time. And it is a, a binary protocol. So whenever you look something up, packet has to be crafted. And this packet contains the query, of course. But it's not anything you would uh, recognize as, as JSON or as XML or whatever. It was written in a time when every bit counted. And they tried to make sure that almost every DNS message and almost every DNS response fit within 512 bytes because that was the maximum packet size that they thought they could reasonably use. And because of that, there is actually the protocol is like fully binary. And domain names are, for example, compressed internally. So if you have a DNS query that has a bunch of answers, then instead of repeating the names of all those answers, it will contain pointers back to the original previous answer. So it is a binary protocol with built-in compression. And you can imagine how well that went because the amount of dns exploits and and crashing bugs we have seen over since 1983 has been like stunning so in short it is a very old protocol that we uh, rely on all day long and it's tricky to get right
1: so i wouldn't class that as simple in today's terms
2: no 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 it's it's definitely not simple and and you see for example that that often it's me- me- it's it's messed up so for example Uh, DNS knows the difference between this name does not exist so let's say I want to go to uh, PowerDNS.UK and that name probably does not exist and so that's one kind of DNS error but there's a second DNS error that says well the name exists but it does not have an IPv6 address so that's a nuance beyond that name exists or it doesn't exist it says the name exists or Uh, The name does exist, but the thing you asked for does not exist. And uh, many implementations will will mess up these two different outcomes. And For example, many load balancers, even to this day, when they do DNS, if you ask them for the IPv6 address of a website, they will very frequently uh, give the wrong answer. So they will answer the whole name you asked for does not exist. They will not say the IPv6 address does not exist. They will say, no, the whole name doesn't exist. And this this has in the past led to like really big brand name websites disappearing from the web because a big load balancer messed up this kind of new ones.
1: And they all do the DNS themselves, I take it?
2: Yeah, I, so for a very long time, people used to use the, the, the very good bind name server for everything to the point that when we started PowerDNS, the only way we could describe ourselves was as a non-BIND name server. So BIND is the not a, this was not the first name server, uh, not by a long shot even. But like in the 1990s, it was the only name server around to the point that yeah, we had to describe ourselves as a non-BIND name server. Uh, recently, people have started to craft their own name server things for all kinds of products and and they have been doing a terrible job at it. it. It is a protocol that is fiendishly difficult to get right. So yeah, it's not simple and there is a lot of dubious code out there.
1: And do you mean when we say, when we called ourselves, do you mean the PowerDNS project?
2: Yes, so we, we, we got launched somewhere in 1999 uh, because someone wanted to do geographical load balancing via DNS so that American users would end up on American servers and European users would end up on European servers. And back in the late 1990s, this was a very, very novel idea where people said, Yeah, it cannot be done, it's impossible. And, and, and what well, we did decide to do it. And, uh, and when we tried to market our product that we built a name server, people said, Yeah, so you, so you sell Bind. And we said, No, we, we made our own name server, but there was such a Strange concept at the time that that we in in our marketing we just had to sell ourselves as a non-bind name server.
1: I see. Talking about load balancers and um, CDNs uh, on show three four seven we interviewed Daniel Corbett on HAProxy, which I think discusses DNS there, and we also did show three four five with Tyler McMullen on CDN networks there for our listeners to review again. So. If we take the usual scenario, not, not server side, but browser side, you or I go to our browser of choice. There's a handful of choices nowadays. You type in the the website, and then it does the DNS lookup. What you've explained already is IPv4 and IPv6. So that would be an A record and a double A record, is that?
2: Yeah, we actually call it a Quad A record. Quad A, okay and uh because it's easier to pronounce so it's actually the the action starts earlier than you say even as you are typing a url in the url bar now, now that we still have it but while you are typing it dns lookups are already being made so we we very often see these these partial uh, requests happening and then when you finally hit enter then it's likely that the dns lookup has already completed in the background And indeed, it does simultaneous IPv4 and IPv6 lookups and it will also then attempt to simultaneously set up connections to the IPv4 and IPv6 address and start working on which chain finishes first. So if the IPv6 lookup and connection finished first, that's the server that will actually get the request and this is the so-called happy eyeballs principle. And it turns out that this, this already uh, is, is, is complex enough to get right, because especially IPv6, and, and we love IPv6 uh, very much so, uh, more than our users, I, I would say. But IPv6 queries far, far more often than you'd like come back with errors, for example. So the, the correct answer is, of course, here is the IPv6 address for the website. The second best answer is, well, the name exists, but it doesn't have an IPv6 address. But quite often you get back the answer, the whole name doesn't exist, or you get an actual error back that says, yeah, we we tried to resolve this name, but yeah, we got timeouts, it didn't work. Um, So quite a lot happens behind the scenes to make DNS work really well. And that's important because, like I said, if DNS is a bit slow, the whole whole browser feels slow. So browsers by now, they do a lot of tricks to make sure that that their queries get answers uh, uh, pronto because it really impacts the user experience.
1: Yeah, it sounds like there's more than a handful of DNS requests going on as soon as you even think about going online with a browser.
2: Yeah, if you look at DNS traffic that is coming out of a typical household right now, and because of the the, the functions we, we fulfill at some of our uh, deployments, we have statistics on how much DNS is coming out of a household. And that is a typical household now generates, I think, one DNS query per second or something like that. Oh, wow. And and that, and that that's a whole household, by the way. And... Um, Apart from the A
1: and Quad A records, what else do you typically see being stored in DNS?
2: Yeah, so as mentioned before, when you do send out email, um, the right mail exchanger needs to be found. So that's a so-called MX record. And you see a lot of those, both on the, the sending side. So one of the things that, for example, that, that we uh, that you can do with DNS is if you have a network with millions of subscribers on there, and you're worrying about bad behavior going on there, like servers that have been hacked. And one of the surest ways of finding if a server is, is hacked is checking how many MX domain queries it is doing. Uh, because many servers that have been hacked will uh, furiously start to attempt to, to spam the whole world. So then you see tons of MX records going by, and uh, a close second, or, or they might even be, f- be more important than or at least more frequent than MX records are so-called Uh, text records so and text records were just meant to be to store arbitrary bits of text in dns for whatever reason and if you look what has happened these text records are now used by many spam lists to where you can look up if this ip address is known to be spamming or uh, if this domain name is known to be involved in phishing so many mail servers will perform a dns text record lookups to figure out if uh, a sending mail server is actually known to be spammy or not. And it's interesting that DNS was used for that technology because to this day, DNS with all its faults and all its age and all its cruft that has grown on it, it is the one single technology that you can with very limited investment say, hey, I can make a worldwide distributed database and you can ask it tens of thousands of questions per second and you will get good answers and that's the kind of thing you need uh, for example when you need to do a dozen lookups for every email message uh, you see so summarizing its MX records and text records mostly
1: yeah I, I think it's a product of its time where similar to the routing protocol BGP where they're both really good designs and they were designed with a limited bandwidth and limited space so it really did force your creativity
2: yeah i would have to agree the limitations at the time were were stark there were many things that we would do differently right now and also the expectations were different so dns for example relies on the internet being a nice place so when you ask a dns question this does not happen usually over a tcp ip connection it happens over a udp connection and a udp query is 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 just throwing out a packet to a server so it does not set up a connection It just sends a single packet that's extremely efficient and then when the response comes back that response is contained in another packet and of course as a client you would like to verify that the packet that came back in response is actually uh, the right answer that it was not a packet that was sent by by anyone else uh, you want to have an, a big ID on there to make sure that the the, the response matches the query. And uh, and these days we, we insist on like 64 bits of security for that kind of thing, so that people don't randomly send answers that might get uh, accepted. And it turns out that in DNS, on every query and every response is a 16-bit, a two-byte field, and that's the field that tells you that this answer is the right one. And that was fine at the time, because they said, yeah, that means that you need to send thousands of packets if you want to spoof in uh, a fake answer, and then no one is gonna send thousands of packets because that they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't imagine that it happened. And and these days we can send a thousand packets in a millisecond. So it turned out that that protection level, that sixteen-bit protection level that they put on there in 1983, is, is completely inadequate by today's standards.
1: It's like the adage, "Who needs more than?" What was it, 2K or 2 meg? Yeah, 2K, yeah.
2: Name. And actually, when you go back, when you ask people, said, why did you use only 16 bits of security? And, and the answer was sort of stunning. They said, oh, we didn't even mean it as security. It was just a sort of, to make it uh, more CPU efficient to match the, the question to the answer. Uh, they didn't mean it as security. And, and, and to make things worse in the original specification, they also said, well, because of the way uh, computers work, uh, if you send a question to name server with IP address A, you might get back an answer from IP address B, which we know as spoofing. We, we, we now see this as a man-in-the-middle attack. And uh, the RFC at the time, helpfully, so the RFC is an internet standard, and the RFC helpfully said, well, if you get an answer back from the wrong IP address, you should still accept it. And uh, yeah, we cannot imagine that that anymore. But on the other hand, we have to realize that we, we, yeah, we we use the protocol. We were at least I wasn't around uh, designing internet standards in 1983, and uh, yeah, it was a different world at the time. What types of DNS servers do we have? Yeah, so it's important to to realize that there are multiple kinds of name servers. So you have in you have a so-called authoritative name servers, and these are the ones that say, I know all about powerdns.com. And this is the IP address of www.powerdns.com. So these are authoritative servers that know what they are talking about. But it's not enough to have an authoritative server because I could, I, anyone could start a server that says, I know everything about powerdns.com, but no one would be able to find that server. So to solve this sort of chicken and egg problem, everything on the internet starts with the root servers. And these are now... I think over a thousand servers with 26 IP addresses. And uh, you can always ask a question of these 26 IP addresses and you will, you will get an answer. It might not be the answer you want, but it's, it is an answer. And this root server is authoritative for the whole internet. So that's good. I mean, it sounds nice. I'm authoritative for the whole internet. Root servers effectively don't know a lot. But they do know that if you ask a question for uh, PowerDNS.com, they know that, well, actually we don't know the answer to that, but we know that the .com servers, they know the answer and you should ask them. And then the root server helpfully gives you a list of IP addresses for the .com servers. And the .com servers, we can ask them, we can say, hey, uh, dear .com server, what's the IP address for PowerDNS.com? And the .com server will again say, well, I, I don't really know, but I do know where the PowerDNS.com name servers are, and maybe you should ask over there. And here are their IP addresses. And then finally, you end up with this authoritative server that I started this story with, and that one can actually tell you, yeah, this is the right IP address.
1: Okay. So 26 IP addresses sounds a bit familiar to something else that has 26 things in it.
2: Yeah, and and, and, and it is still a lucky accident. Okay. But I'll, I'll I'll get to that because it ties into the 512-byte packet limit I mentioned okay. originally. But but now to find our way among all these authoritative servers, that, that was originally uh, thought to be too much work for simple computers. So a separate server was invented for that called a resolver or a cache. And this resolver or cache, that would then traverse all these authoritative servers starting from the root server to find the answer to your actual question. And that is actually still the model that we have. So in your browser, you type the domain name you want to visit. The browser sends the query to that, to its configured resolver that is part of your local network typically. And that one will uh, troll the whole internet for you and consult different authoritative servers until it finds the right answer.
1: So the resolvers come with a predefined list of things.
2: Yes, this is the so-called hints file and the hints file contain all these contain a suggestion, a list of around 26 IP addresses and those that list might be outdated, might be that you turn on your computer and it hasn't been turned on for for a few years Uh, so at startup, a resolving name server will try all these so-called hints hint records to see if it can find a name server that answers and typically we see that out of the Uh, sort of 13 uh, IPv4 and and 13 IPv6 records, we see that one or two of them change every year. So even if you had not turned on your resolving name server since the past 15 years, uh, it would have found one IP address that worked. And from there, it would have learned the latest list of 26 IP addresses. That's pretty impressive that it has that longevity. Yeah, I think that came from a time when people realized that a computer that you haven't done any administration on for the past 10 years is bound to be hacked by now and be operated by a troop of Russian hackers that you don't know. At the time, they thought it was very important that machines that had not been had not seen any maintenance for the past 10 years would still work well.
1: And um, these 26
2: things, I read somewhere about K and A and B. Yeah, so they affectionately are known as... Uh, A root or B root or whatever, C root. And they they run from A root to M root. And each of them has a history where it came from. So A root was sort of the the original root server of the Internet. And today it is being operated by VeriSign. And that used to be Network Solutions. That goes back into the dark ages of the Internet. And for example, F root uh, is operated by the Internet Software Consortium. The people that also make the bind name server, and then uh, K root is run by uh, RIPE, the the European IP address people. So each of them has a has a has a host and where it lives. So NASA has one, and the Japanese IPv6 project has one, and that uh, not even not that long ago, these were actually uh, these thirteen servers were also actually physically like thirteen servers that you could visit. So I I visited. A number of them. And it is sort of fun to sort of stand next to one of the, the roots of the internet. But these days, through the miracles of, of any cast, it has now become possible to take a single IP address and have it be served by, by hundreds of computers all over the world. And so I haven't done run the latest numbers, but I, I, I would guess that if you physically look at how many computers are doing root serving right now, that is a number that used to be like 13 and is now probably closer to 1,000 or maybe even 2,000.
1: Yeah, it really does show you how critical DNS is to the internet that it's safeguarded by all these independent companies. Yeah. Um, I'd like to move us on a bit because we're running out of time a little bit. So when we use the recursors, they have a list of hints in their database and then they go and validate that and speak to the root. If we talk about trust, how does PowerDNSDeck.com get into the whole system, you know, how do you, if you forget the commercial side of buying it, but how does that get registered within the core of the DNS and, and how does that get trusted? Just a, a semi-brief answer so we can
2: move on to another question. Sure, so so actually there is a whole parallel network. So we have the name server, the DNS protocol by which we ask questions. But if I want to get my name registered at in the .com zone, I, I, I will have to convince a registrar which is a company in between, that I own that domain and that they should publish my changes. And so this is actually, a, we have a downstream protocol that's DNS. So once the, the data is out there, you can ask queries using DNS. But if you want to change DNS data, there's a whole zoo of protocols, some of which are standardized, called the EPP, for example, and, and, and many of them that are not standardized. So actually the whole authentication business of how do I make changes to publish domain names is is far messier than how how do you actually send out queries.
1: And how does the registrar prove who it is to get the domain name registered, as it were?
2: That's that's a really good one. And uh, to be honest, I don't really know. It's sort of interesting that I don't know, uh, because that shows you how, how big the separation, the gap is between the people that serve DNS names, which would be my business, and and how people register domain names. And I assume there are blobs of XML which are being signed with certificates. And But to be honest, I don't know.
1: I looked at it for, well, I've got a business in the UK to get registered with nominet and it's quite a process. It's like creating a new business, really. You've got to prove that you've got a customer base, that you're trustworthy, that you can do all these things. And I'm not surprised it's something that you don't really know about unless you've tried to sell domain names.
2: Yeah, no, but it, 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 it's good that it's somewhat difficult because the people that, that are operating in there, they, they have the power to, to register domain names and change them on your behalf, because you make no mistake, if you, rec- if you register your domain name somewhere, you can do all the security that you want, but the place where you registered the domain has full control over your domain name, and they could change everything about it. It is crucial that you register your domain at the right place. Exactly. So,
1: as software engineers, why is DNS so important to us when we're writing internet-facing software?
2: It always sits between you and the client, and, or, or if you are the client, it, sit, it sits between you and the server. And unless you're really fond of typing in IP addresses, then, then there is no alternative. You always have to pipe your stuff through DNS, if you want it or not. And the interesting thing is that actually being in the DNS world, uh, we are rather fond of using IP addresses. Uh, because they always work. So I recently launched uh, a project uh, that, that has to connect to servers. And for the longest time, I did not actually su- support DNS lookups in there. I told people to connect to fixed IP addresses. And uh, and when that no longer scaled, I, I started using DNS, of course. But there's sort of an irony in there that I come from this. My, my whole company is called DNS. And we're like, well, let's see how far we can get without DNS. But in general, you will always, everything you do touches DNS. And if you want it or not. So for example, if you look at the DNS queries that come out of a typical enterprise, you will see all kinds of failed projects in there, old servers, uh, companies that have been acquired and and stuff. Everything is DNS. So even if you want it or And I'm not saying it's great technology. It's just that it's very difficult to not use it.
1: And um, do you recommend that anyone ever runs their own resolvers as a software engineer? authoritative DNS, or do you uh, sub-allocate that to a different yeah, team?
2: No, I, in a typical enterprise situation, you had best say, look, there's no competitive advantage for you to run your own resolver. That is really something that your network provider provides, and it, it will not get better if, if you run uh, your own from an enterprise setting. The answer is is very diff- different if you are at home and and you don't trust your internet service provider. But if you are in a professional setting where you don't trust your network, you're probably in the wrong place. Yeah, I see,
1: it, it, that might be something we'll touch on a bit when we get to the DNS over HTTPS. Okay, so I'd like to shift us along a bit. So now we've covered what DNS is. Obviously, we could speak hours about more detail of what DNS is, but I think that's a good foundation. Yeah, we could. Yeah, I'd like to. Discuss um, as many of the bad things that we have time for that can be done to it um, So you can tell us a little bit about DNS hijacking
2: Yeah, so there are DNS is vulnerable in a number of ways for being hijacked But but the story is actually slightly different than than you might think um, It is possible to fake DNS answers because the original DNS protocol has no encryption on it. No authentication There's no integrity so uh, if you sit on the wire and you have the ability to change packets, you can just invent your own DNS answers and, and no one will know. This was typically seen as, as very bad, and of course it is very bad. But in reality, it turned out that it is, it's pretty difficult because if you are the man in the middle, you can already do a lot of things. And the main worry was really not so much the man in the middle, but was the man on the side. And by that I mean that, let's say, I know that someone, uh, someone's house, they're uh, watching a lot of uh, YouTube videos or whatever. And so I flood their house with answers to the question, what is the IP address of YouTube.com? I just keep sending packets that contain the answer to the question uh, of the IP address for YouTube.com is 1.2.3.4. And then the idea was that eventually one day my fake answer would be accepted and your computer would connect to 1.2.3.4 and not the real YouTube server. And in practice, it turned out that this on a modern internet, this is extremely difficult to do and has not been done a lot in practice. What has been done a lot in practice and has been extremely painful is where DNS gets hijacked administratively, by which I mean we don't hack the protocol. We uh, just move your whole domain name to new servers. And why has that been so successful? It turns out that there has not been a tremendously good focus on the registrar security bit, So you may have, uh, have a very good uh, secured network, but in the end, your domain name is controlled by a very weak password, and, and this has been exacerbated that the original and often most important domain name for a company has been registered by the founder originally. In the, the early days of the company when there was no security department, so the password might be as strong as password123. And this has, has caused a ton of pain where people's domain names have been moved away from them administratively and then they have had to have a fight to get them moved back to themselves. So I would say that DNS has been attacked more administratively than technically, oddly enough. And um, what would you call that type of attack? I, th- I think they, they, they do call it, a, well, they call it, for example, a registrar hijack. Okay. And there, are, I, th- I think in the US, the, the the NCSC created a special name for it. Uh, Which which I don't know right now, but the key insight here is that if you run your own business or if you are in charge of domain names, try to figure out for all your important domain names who actually controls those domain names. And And you should pay very special attention to the account recovery capabilities because more often than not, the original founder registered the domain name from his Hotmail account, which is still around. And uh, maybe long compromised, and then an attacker can go to the registrar and say, "Hey, I lost my password." So that falls into the normal type of social engineering. Yes, yes. So these these are normal attacks. Yes, it is, it is. But 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 it turns out that that people pay a lot of attention to all kinds of things, and then the uh, most important uh, password of all of them, which is the the, the password that controls the whole uh, domain name of the company, is single factor and super weak. And I would, I would classify this as the biggest risk to DNS right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, why would you go into flooding a connection with UDP packets that aren't ordered, you know, as much as you can, when you can yeah. just call up technical support and say, I forgot my
2: password. Yeah. I, I forgot. Yeah. Well, actually, if you look at most big banks, and if you look at, at Google, for example, most of the really big privacy-aware companies have become their own registrar because they decided it was just too scary to hook all their security to a company that has less security skills than they do themselves. So in the Netherlands, every bank is their own registrar because that made them able to have a direct connection to the .nl people and not have someone else sitting in between. Just going back to the DNS hijacking, you said that it's
1: not very common, but I just wanted to understand when it's flooded with packets because you previously explained that DNS is UDP, uh, and they're not ordered. They can just sit, and it will just confuse it at some point and think, oh, that must be my reply.
2: That's what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the trick. And it used to be very easy to do that. You had to figure out only this, this ID field, this 16-bit ID field. And that was trivial to do. It was really simple. People could do it in two seconds. Is it something you should be worried about today? no because an uh, an rfc was written actually i wrote it that said well actually we don't need just a random uh, id field we also need a random source port and with a fully random source port you just suddenly went from 16 bits security to 32 bits security which is still not luxurious but it turns out that if you try to spoof 4 billion packets the people do tend to notice okay can i move us on to amplification attacks yeah oh yeah, sure. Oh boy. yeah amplification attacks.
1: With so many IOT devices, I guess it's still out there.
2: Yeah, it is still out there uh, and actually at, at times it becomes huge. Um, so the whole idea there is that you take a, a device that does not have that much bandwidth and you make it send a thousand small DNS queries per second, which is maybe all you can get out of this this small device and then you but the queries you send out, are uh, designed to create huge answers. So you send out these thousand small queries per second, and these small queries generate gigantic answers of maybe two kilobytes each. And then suddenly you created from your bandwidth limited device, you just created a 20 megabits per second attack, which of course still not a lot uh, unless you have thousands of devices again. And from time to time, and and the, the trick is then to send out a query from a fake IP address. And then what happens is your answer goes out from this fake IP address and then the response goes to that real IP address. And if you've picked your address right, you can you can yeah, send out a limited number of questions from fake IP addresses and then flood the real IP address with great force. And from time to time, last year, late 2019, someone decided to attack the PowerDNS name service this way. And We have no idea why we have no idea why why someone did it but it's 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 still big and and the the practical upshot of this is that you should be yeah you should monitor your name servers that's really the only you can rate limit them so modern dns software is able to rate limit itself that has its own challenges but your your high performance name server might be part of a high performance botnet without you knowing it that would be a public
1: name server wouldn't it
2: Yes, these are public name servers, and we we saw it as a bit of an interesting challenge to see how well, how how well do we deal with a few hundred megabits per second of attack.
1: So That be your authoritative name server that you've got.
2: Yes, that's where, those were those were our own our own corporate yeah. name servers, and so we we took this attack as, a, as an opportunity to learn, and we did learn a lot. I have to admit. Yeah, you would either you would have to rate limit yourself or. Be behind uh, someone else's denial of service scrubber or something like that. But uh, the DNS does uh, attract some um, as, yeah, larger amounts of traffic than you would uh, expect, maybe.
1: We've got a good article on the IEEE Computer Society website on securing DNS in the cloud era that goes into that. So I've got a link in the show notes for listeners to pick up on.
2: Yeah, I, I would recommend everyone to read that link. Uh, because this is not a concern to you until it happens. Yes,
1: as is everything.
2: <laughs> as is everything, but it's, this is something that can go well for, for a decade. <laughs> and then suddenly uh, you're like, oh, this is, turns out that I have protected everything in my network except this.
1: Okay, so can I move us on to poisoning
2: attacks? Um, yeah, you could. So the, the art of DNS poisoning is that uh, whenever you ask a DNS question, uh, it's not a simple question and answer protocol. So, for example, if you ask the question, uh, what's the IP address of PowerDNS.com to the root servers, you don't get back an IP address. You get back the name of other name servers where you could ask this question. And there's an, another sec- section that says, well, helpfully here are the IP addresses of the other name servers where you could ask this question. So whenever you receive a DNS answer, you might find more stuff in there than what you actually asked for and this more stuff means that a resolver has to take a very critical look at what it received in the answer to see which parts in there it should actually be believing or using and back in the really old days and you can still read this in the original uh, rfc standard that is still in force today rfc 1034 and it will tell you that a, uh, an authoritative server may helpfully give you more answers than, than you asked for, and it recommends that you use those answers. And the problem there is that if I ask for PowerDNS.com, I might get an answer for different records that I never asked for. And originally, people would actually use those different answers and store them in the cache. So I could just send you a new IP address for a bigbank.co.uk and uh, resolvers would say, "Oh, thank you. That's very helpful, and uh, we'll use that from now on." Ah, uh,
1: yeah, because you because you're caching it, you can deliver what else you want.
2: Yes, and it yes. So it's the full name is actually cache poisoning attacks, where you try to put stuff in the cache that uh, that is false, and that used to be possible by by attaching uh, additional answers to questions that would then be accepted because the standard has set as much. It said, "Yeah, you should." accept that and only in later standards did this uh, advice uh, be uh, was, was revoked and said no no no, don't ever so i think that th- so the original uh enforced dns rfc is 1034 and that was fixed only in 2182 so uh, so we have advanced a lot of rfcs before someone said well maybe don't let everyone poison your cash uh, these days it's a solved, it's, it's, it's an almost solved problem, by the way, except that there are, are still techniques by which over days, if you have days of time, you will still be able to perform cache poisoning, but you need days of hundreds of megabits per second of DNS answers.
1: So the t- the DNS hijacking and cache poisoning, should that be discounted from my list? Or is it just something to keep an eye on?
2: I, I, it is not the biggest, the biggest worry right now. It's um, if you care about this stuff, and I, I, th- I think you should care about this this stuff, of course, is let's say you have a name server and you see that it's receiving a gigabit per second of traffic all day long. That is, that someone would within a few days will be able to cash to poison your name server. And that's the state of the art. And and that's something to, to watch out for, but it's not, So in theory, it's a risk. Uh, in, in practice, we don't see a lot of it, but that's that's. I mean, the, the year is still fresh. You don't know.
1: <laughs> is this something developers need to worry about, or is it their upstream?
2: No, it, it, it's not something you. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the developer angle for that is. But one thing you you might want to look out for is that if you have a a user behavior, uh, if you have untrusted users, that could make your system perform DNS lookups that would allow them to open a window for this kind of cache poisoning so it is not harmless if untrusted users can force you to do dns lookups and that's something maybe to look out for
1: yeah so i imagine something user facing where you've got a maybe type head search and you're not sanitizing that properly and just querying domains to check something,
2: yeah, that that kind of stuff, yeah.
1: Or you're doing reverse DNS lookups in your server-side exactly, application yeah. type thing, yeah.
2: The, or or if someone is has a form and they can enter a URL in there and you try to check the contents of that URL, that that those are things that could make an untrusted user perform, yeah, make your server do DNS lookups.
1: Yeah, that might be the the nice features on a creating a thumbnail image on some type of profile or something where your system is trying to go and look up that URL to get some content.
2: Yeah, exactly. And we actually, uh, one, one fun, fun thing that we do from time to time is you, if you post a URL on Twitter, uh, then name servers all over the world will immediately start trying to resolve that uh, domain name. Um, so and, and that's like hundreds of name servers immediately do that, no matter what you post on Twitter.
1: So you could use that as a amplification type thing.
2: Yeah, I actually think there is a. Uh, it, it does. It does teach you something about the world and and who is, who is monitoring these domains and what name servers they are using and where they are from. There, there. Yeah, there is an information leak going on there. And in, in general, DNS will leak your secrets, because computers do so many of these queries based on what they see. We have, we found a very interesting bug. I th- think it was in Sublime editor, but I I could be wrong, where if you uh, highlighted uh, a piece of text then the editor would sometimes think it looked a bit like a URL and would take your highlighted text and perform a DNS lookup with that highlighted text in there. Mm. Um, that was a very scary information leak because people do copy-paste passwords a lot.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, and it was fixed very quickly but it was it was the kind of thing where we thought, yeah, DNS is a window um, on the world and it will, it will just send out stuff, random. I mean, if you look at the the log file, most name servers do not log because it's so much. But if you look at the log file of a name server, you see the craziest queries come in from people that uh, copy-pasted half a sentence, and that sentence ended on PowerDNS.com. And then you get that, that whole sentence as a DNS query. It is a zoo.
1: Yeah, I think there's some online tools to look at that sort of things that have leaked out.
0: Yeah. Calling all developers. There's no telling what you can create when you upgrade your data platform to InterSystems IRIS. Are you ready to build the applications you want, however you want them? Are you ready to develop applications faster than ever? Collaborate, build faster, and deploy more efficiently. Tomorrow's next breakthroughs are waiting for you today. InterSystems IRIS Data Platform. Ready, set, code. Start coding for free. Visit intersystems.com try to try IRIS.
1: Okay, um, so, so far we've spoken about the attacks, we've covered the overview of DNS and at the moment it's quite naked, we've just got to trust it, all sorts of things can leak out. So where does that lead us to? How can we think about our privacy, our integrity, uh, the the big E, encryption? Yeah is DNS completely flawed at the moment or you know where are we
2: yeah so we we do have uh, DNSSEC for example DNSSEC adds integrity to DNS so it means that you if if you have an answer uh, you can validate that you got the right answer
1: and do you mean i as a software engineer should validate that or is that done before me
2: yeah that's the interesting bit that's the really interesting bit the software people we have not been able to get the software people to do this. So what do I mean by that? Code applications that use DNS have decided that they are not going to validate DNS answers. So even browsers, which are like very good with security, they will simply ask a question of a name server and they will trust the answer. Um, Technically speaking, it's entirely possible for a uh, browser to validate DNS answers using DNSSEC. And a surprising number of domain names are now DNSSEC signed. Browsers have have just decided, yeah, we're not going to do it because we put our trust in TLS certificates. We think those are better. And what is that actually signing? Uh, So it signs, and it is sort of interesting. What it signs is basically a piece of knowledge. So if you compare TLS, for example, or SSL, and that is what we call transport security. So it will sign whatever for you, and you know that the data you received is the data you should have been receiving. DNSSEC works way differently, and it works a lot closer to how PGP or SMIME work, in the sense that DNSSEC actually signs the final answer to your question. So you get an IP address for for powerdns.com, and then there's a DNSSEC signature below it, and that actually signs that IP address. It does not sign the transmission of the IP address, it signs the actual name IP address combination. And that has made it difficult to implement, but now now that we have it, it is there. And collectively, all application developers have said, said, yeah, whatever, we're not going to do it. We're just going to use whatever our uh, programming environment does when we tell it to look up uh, an IP address.
1: So like the DNS library that Yes. The operating system's using or... Yeah. You, you could choose to do it yourself, can you?
2: Yeah, there are very fine libraries that, that allow you to do it yourself and, and then you could verify the DNSX signature and it would be more secure. And, and and collectively, everyone has said, yeah, we're not doing it. It, it is really sad. I, I do understand it somewhere because we, we have just put our collective trust in TLS certificates being correct. But it's
1: the same as, you know, you just having a a web form and you don't sanitize the inputs and you don't do cross-site request forgery checks and it should be that sort of level with DNS if it's a critical application.
2: Yeah, I, I, I do think there's a little bit of difference there. We, we can honestly say that, that as long as we trust TLS certificates then the IP address does not matter. We can, we can just say, look, whatever we can we can use a 1.2.3.4 for all our communications and just rely completely on the TLS uh, certificate checking to be correct. And what is the IP address? Yeah, it, basically, it doesn't. The the, the the idea behind that is that you put all your trust in the certificate ver- verification of HTTPS, basically. And if you trust HTTPS to uh, message uh, integrity or your transport integrity you lo- no longer care about the IP address because the IP address is at, at that point is just no longer uh, mattering for your security because the transport has been uh, has, has integrity
1: so you don't need to worry about DNSSEC if you're encrypting
2: yeah you could you could you could you could take that you could take that view and that and actually not only could you take that view that is the view that everyone has taken uh, where they say we don't really we don't the IP address doesn't matter uh, because we just assume it's fake already we get our security from, from verifying the TLS transport and uh, it's fine up to a point uh, until you you've seen that there have been hijacks where people uh, hijacked the DNS name uh, briefly and then were' able to get themselves a whole bunch of new TLS certificates based on that brief hijack and that is the kind of place where DNSSEC validation would have helped. And the Let's Encrypt people are now also doing that. So that's nice. So there is a role for DNSSEC, uh, but right now people are just not doing it.
1: Yeah, there's a type of, there's a, like a chicken and egg scenario there where a lot of companies to validate you own the domain, ask you to do what you discussed in the introduction by hosting a tax record on your website yeah, or your domain it. name <laughs> record. So if you've hijacked the record, you can then get the certificate to prove that if you're running DNS over HTTPS, yeah. it's yours. We actually did a show, um, episode 378, with Joshua Davies on attacking securing uh, private key infrastructures, PKI. So if the listeners can jump on there to see what you can do to actually get that DNSSEC um, broken. So if you want integrity without encryption, you've got DNSSEC. But if you move DNS queries over to TLS or HTTPS, you can kind of drop DNSSEC with the caveat
2: that you've just explained.
1: So so what does that bring us?
2: Yeah, what does it bring us? I think that the, the, the internet security is still, right now, still a web of cards or a house of cards. Um, as long as you can are able to take over control of a domain name, you can do a lot of terrible things to people's uh, certificates and uh, there are ways to pin certificates and but they're not super strong and i think the world would have been a lot better if we had dnssec to well at least tighten up control uh, of that yeah that text record phenomenon that you mentioned that if you're able to manipulate a single text record on a domain name that you're able to do everything on it from that point on
1: so at the moment we've got um the privacy concerns as well that are wrapped up yep. in all of this. Do you want to take me through what private cons- privacy concerns there are without DNSSEC or encryption on the local network, enterprise network or public Wi-Fi? Just briefly and then we can
2: drill into how yeah. we're addressing that and if that's the right way. Yeah, so very briefly you should realize that DNS traffic really tells you everything about the person so if you look at if you only have access to someone's dns records you will be able to tell where they live what phone they have what brand of tv they have where the, which streaming video services they use where they live where they work what their uh, what, what schools they go to what, what, what sports teams they like dns is per 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 bit perhaps the most privacy sensitive uh, material on the internet right now, because it tells you it tells you which hospitals you visit and everything. So it is very much worth it to protect uh, your DNS records because we don't want too many people to uh, have access to those. And
1: is that because it has the domain name that you're querying to map through to an IP address?
2: Yes, exactly. So if you only have the DNS traffic of someone, you will see whatever they typed into their browser. And or whatever app they launched, or if, they, if you have a webcam or a printer. I mean, if I look at the DNS traffic in my house, I can tell you exactly what printer I have and what phones people have and uh, when the play.
1: And how, how is that? Is there some other type of metadata in that query apart from just the domain name? No, that's,
2: that's it. No, it's just a domain name. It's just a domain name. But if you look at what, what modern tools, what kind of DNS lookups they do, uh, the whole name of my printer Uh, gets sent out as a dns query and uh, and the nintendo switch in our house uh, wakes up at night and does dns queries to see if there are updates or not so that might be
1: to like nintendo.com
2: yeah or it goes to a nintendo switch update server.com
1: i see yeah i'm just trying to understand how you map yeah the query to the device
2: yeah no it's it's very it's, it's very descriptive of what's going on in your house and and it is, we, we did a small experiment, PowerDNS, with a data set that we have, which is a pre, uh, pre-GDPR. It's a long time ago. But we tr- we tried to figure out if we could find ourselves in uh, this huge data set. And based on only a few things, like where someone lived and uh, where they worked. So you basically look at everyone that makes a connection to imap.powerdns.com and something with the name of the town in which they lived. And we immediately found uh, our guy in this huge data set. Uh, because he was the only one visiting powerdinas.com and visiting the name of that village. So it is a very descriptive and privacy-sensitive thing, and it's very much worth uh, protecting. And it's that, for example, if you have all that information,
1: how do you map that back to a person? Is it not just arbitrary data at that point?
2: Yeah, so this gets you to the point of what is uh, pseudonymity. And, uh, and if you have a, a list of IP addresses and domain names they, they visit, um, this very quickly is, is becomes de-anonymized. So um, if I look at myself, I radiate a pattern where I visit lots of PowerDNS.com-related uh, content. I have a few other projects. And if you would say, uh, give me all the IP addresses that visit uh, the following uh, five websites, that would always be me.
1: Yeah, so if, if there's a... An FBI request for Bert, <laughs> for example, he's the, the chief architect of PowerDNS look for anything with PowerDNS in it. You could go yeah. that way. But the other way
2: around, how you would need something to look for, really. Yeah, you would, you would need to know something uh, about it. But it's not that difficult. If, if, if someone has a Tesla, and, uh, and, and, and I know that they work at a certain company, and I know the name of the sports team that they like, that every step in that narrows it down tremendously and uh and all these things radiate outside from your uh, radiate out of your internet connection
1: and so with this big list of leaking information do these concerns go away
2: if we switch to using dns over HTTPS or tls well the, the problems certainly move because encryption of course cannot this can it cannot make the data go away because this is internet uh i mean you have to if you make a connection to. To a website somehow someone will know that you made a connection to that website it's almost impossible to hide that you can only choose which people do get access to that data
1: yeah and if, if you were to profile your office connection your home connection there'll still be X amount of traffic coming from that connection between 8 and 6 p.m. for example so they know you're there
2: yeah oh that, that's the other one that's so that, so that, that's the traffic data So that's just the the fact that you are using dns queries Mm -hmm. but the whole discussion that's going on now is where people say look dns is unencrypted and that's that's bad and i i am in full agreement with that we should encrypt dns every place we can but the solution that people have chosen for that is say well right now most of your dns traffic is unencrypted between you and your service provider so that might be sky or that might be bt uh, or it might be Plusnet, so they, they can see what you are visiting. And the proposed solution is then to encrypt DNS, which is good, and then send it to a new third party, and they then get access to all your browsing data. And, and I'm, that is a part where, where I say I'm not that convinced that that actually is, is progress, because before we had this highly regulated telecommunications company, at least here in Europe, and uh, so the the telecommunications company knows, yeah, what sites you are visiting, which is okay. Yeah, I'm not happy about that, but it is the, it it's not pro, uh, progress if we then say, well, from now on, this American company will know exactly what sites you are visiting. Yeah, your telco is pretty much heavily regulated by the government. Yeah, and uh, that has upsides and downsides. That means that, the third party DNS. Yeah, the the, the, the telco typically here uh, is very regulated. And, and has to adhere to GDPR or very GDPR-like uh, legislation. And that means they are in a bad place to monetize your data. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's, it's there are a lot of hurdles in place, and it's, it's going to be very tricky to just start selling people's uh, traffic data. And if the proposal is then, well, we want to encrypt your DNS, but in order to encrypt your DNS, we're going to send it to, I don't know, Google or Cloudflare, uh, these are far less regulated places well and these are the current proposals the original story was that yeah we have to give it to cloudflare because the big internet service providers of the world they are not uh, working on encrypting their DNS and the good news is that that has changed with all uh, the many of the very largest internet service providers are now either offering or working on offering fully encrypted DNS and with that I don't see a lot of benefit anymore of sending all my encrypted data to a third party that I did not select So if we just take a step back,
1: we've been able to do DNS over TLS, which is, I presume, the natural step through a protocol over TLS and we're encrypted and we're done. Why are we not all
2: on that in the world? Actually, so this has been standardized. So there was an RFC, a standard that says, this is how you do DNS over TLS. And then no one did it. Nothing happened. And why did nothing happen? Uh, For one thing, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, people don't really see dns as a security thing because they say well we're not trusting dns anyhow uh, so we don't really care and that was one reason just the lack of care uh, the other reason is that dns over tls runs over port 853 so that's the normal dns port but then 800 higher and port 853 is just simply blocked in most environments You will not be able to send out a query on port 853 from most corporate networks because they, they, yeah, everything is now uh, everything is blocked these days except port 443. Uh, So HTTPS is the new TCP, and so DNS over TLS didn't take off one because people really didn't care, and secondly because most firewalls just blocked it. Um, So why HTTPS and
1: a new protocol? I think you touched previously that port 853 is just not going to be opened in the real world and everything speaks 443. So what does that protocol look like?
2: Yeah. So so what they did when people got sort of re-energized on this and they said, we need to do encrypted DNS. They said, we're going to make sure that no one can block this. It was a design goal. It stated in the first paragraph of the standard that says, we want to do DNS that cannot be blocked. And uh, and the best way of not being able to block something is to move it to generic HTTPS queries and say, hey, this is, everyone has to allow port 443 anyhow, so we're going to use that. So that was one reason why they moved to DNS over HTTPS. And the other reason was that browser vendors, uh, who are, of course, the, the, the big guns uh, in this game, uh, they are very good at HTTPS. For them https is sort of the basic unit of functionality that they work with so for them it was the most natural thing in the world to say hey we're going to use port 443 and https for everything because that's what we do and originally even uh, going back to your question what does it look like originally even their idea was to take dns and just sort of do away with it and uh, reformat the dns query as uh, json and, and we all love JSON, is because you can you can put everything in there. And they thought it would be good to sort of stop doing this ridiculous DNS protocol and uh, and move to JSON. And this this got a pretty long way even uh, before it was realized that that porting the whole DNS semantics to JSON uh, would actually be a lot of work. Um, so then the decision was made to turn DNS over HTTPS literally into that. So you take a DNS query as formatted normally, so as as it would have been in 1983, and then take that normal DNS query and put it in an HTTPS connection, and that that's what it looks like. It's it, in that sense, it 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 is not special.
1: So it'd be just like posting a file content.
2: Yeah, it is actually. It can be a post of content. It can also be a get requests uh, both have their advantages and disadvantages and uh, um, it, it looks just like normal uh, HTTPS traffic except that um, it, the queries are very small of course and there are a lot of them so it does look slum- somewhat atypical uh, from a network connection because normally you will get small query and then maybe a megabyte of answer or whatever and here you get small query and then also a small answer coming back and, and then a lot of those
1: and does this mean that we don't need to worry about any of the attack vectors that we spoke about earlier? or does it bring a different set? Uh,
2: actually, it does nothing really. Um, it, it helps you against the attack factor that uh, s- that someone sitting on your network uh, would be able to tell what sites you are visiting. It also does protect you against someone sitting right next to you on your network and trying to send you fake DNS answers. So let's say the, the the attacker is in your house or in your own network. It would protect you against your own network,
1: like some type of malware bot or something like that.
2: Yeah, or an evil, let's say a fake a fake Wi-Fi access point or something like that.
1: And with these small packets, how fast is it versus UDP?
2: Yeah, that's a very good. So the the, the so it has has been found that that with sufficient statistics you can argue that it's not that dns over https is not much slower but you do need quite some statistics to make that happen i I would prefer to look at it another way a uh, well-performing traditional uh, dns over udp name server will always be faster than dns over https and by by some margin even if you however make the comparison between a not very well uh, maintained resolver and a very well-maintained DNS over HTTPS resolver, then you find that the very well-maintained DNS over HTTPS resolver uh, can in fact be as fast or even a little bit bit faster in some cases than the not very well-maintained classic DNS resolver. But there is a significant um, overhead. And
1: from the point of view of um, an ISP or a network operator, can they prioritize this traffic over another type of HTTPS traffic?
2: Yeah, no, actually, that would be extremely difficult because they can't—they can't look inside it. No, it looks just like normal traffic, and, and and in fact, the 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 delay is not so much due to congestion or other things, but simply by because it uses so many more packets to get the same thing done. Uh, so a typical DNS query response is typically two packets, classic DNS. With HTTPS, um, we've seen this take six packets or more. So that's like a factor of three more. So there, there is always going to be, uh, you cannot prioritize yourself out of a latency situation.
1: And I guess you've already got it implemented in PowerDNS.
2: Yeah, we were actually, so we we were sort of really early with that. and And there's a slight paradox in there that we've been arguing heavily against sending DNS to... Yeah, third parties mostly in the US because originally the idea was just that we would start sending all our DNS to, to Google and Cloudflare. And we thought that was a terrible, terrible idea for the autonomy of our networks and, and our privacy. But many people then started fighting DNS over HTTPS and we thought that was misguided. We said, no, it's, it's not the protocol that's doing anything wrong. It's what people do with it. So we then shifted to making sure that anyone could start doing Uh, encrypted DNS, so that all the large uh, service providers of this world would be able to offer their own encrypted DNS, because encrypted DNS is good. Um, So that's why we came out early uh, with these capabilities, and have now also been able to scale them up, scale them up for use in uh, really large-scale networks with uh, tens of millions of people on there. So while we decry the move of DNS to less regulated third parties, uh, we were uh, very enthusiastic about making sure that the protocol was easily implemented. Well, you've pretty much squashed my
1: last few questions in that section with that answer. That's really good.
2: Ah, um, that's efficient.
1: So if it's so perfect, what problems are there still to work out?
2: Yeah, the, 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 one of the issues with uh, one of the fun things, let me put it the other way around, about classic DNS, is that because every query is just a single packet, that means that uh, browsers could just send out 25 queries and wait for answers to come in. And some answers might come in earlier, some might come later. So for example, if you send two questions for the uh, IPv4 and IPv6 address, the IPv6 answer might come in earlier, sometimes the IPv4 answer might come in earlier, and the browser can just simply use the first answer that comes in. If you send your queries over uh, DNS over HTTPS, that is actually a connection-based protocol. And being a connection-based protocol means that uh, if the first question has not arrived correctly over at the resolver, the, the second question will also not have arrived correctly. The second question can only be processed once the first question has arrived. And this is called head-of-line blocking. And this is a well-acknowledged issue in DNS over HTTPS. And for this reason, there are now valiant attempts ongoing to move https paradoxically again from tcp to a udp based protocol called quick quic this quick protocol then brings the sort of out of order benefits of udp to https and that is a big ongoing effort right now but it it it's turning out to be be hard work this isn't part of the http Two spec. This is no, this is actually part of the HTTP three spec. Okay, uh, because it turned out that HTTP HTTP two, for all its glories, did ship with the head of line blocking issue that that you just get when you use TCP. So in that way, uh, DNS over HTTPS is actually currently a step backwards in terms of par- sending out parallel queries and and operating on. Less than perfect networks, because this this is all about packet loss. By the way, I had to just to clarify: uh, a single dropped packet will now cause DNS over HTTPS to come to a standstill. Given all the intelligent people dealing with this, you as a given, also, how did RFC eight four eight four get out? Yeah, I think, but I think the best answer to that is that many of the people involved live in the U.S. and in the U.S. the privacy situation from uh, service providers is just dire they will they will sell all your data all the time and from that perspective there they argued we need to do something that cannot be blocked by verizon and the only thing that they could come up with that could not be blocked by verizon was dns over https and given the background that we have to do something and this is something then you could end up with the DNS over HTTPS RFC and then you can of course have the privacy worries where you say well look uh, if we now start sending our DNS to another third party maybe maybe they will also sell all our data and then they said no we're going to sign really good contracts with those people where they promise not to sell our data and and then they they arrived at the sort of nirvana for them where they said well we've solved the uh, verizon selling all our data problem and we have a contract that says that, that this new third party will not sell all our data and presto we're done we achieved something great and from the us perspective i i can understand where they are coming from what what
1: benefits do you see that have come out of this apart from dns being encrypted
2: well, I, I, well, that is, of course, just a major benefit, DNS being yeah. encrypted. I, uh, we, we should not overlook that one. If anything else has come out of it, uh, it has been the importance of, of DNS and, uh, and indeed the, uh, the raising of awareness of, of how little we are actually doing in uh, protecting it and, and looking at it. So there, uh, it is suddenly on everyone's radar. And, uh, and DNS has has always been sort of under-appreciated, under under-maintained, sitting quite uncomfortably between a networking and application departments. In many organizations, there, DNS doesn't live anywhere. There's no team that says we own DNS. It's it's sort of, yeah, it's not quite the network, it's not quite the application. In many service providers, it also doesn't live anywhere. And this has really put DNS on the map. So. I would say that, that that may be beyond the very important part of encrypting DNS. The biggest benefit may have been putting DNS on people's radar.
1: Okay. Thank you. Um, I'd like to wrap up the show now. Obviously, DNS is extremely important for us all, but if there is one thing that a software engineer should remember from our show, what do you recommend that to be? It's a tough one. I always ask this type of question at the end.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. It's a good, it's a good, it's a very good thing uh, that you asked this. Monitor it. That's really. Um, I, I realize that this is not quite the the software, the, from the software developer standpoint. But when DNS breaks, everything will break. So it is it is worth adding a little bit more diagnostics to it, and maybe being a little bit more aware of what happens. And as one concrete example that you could think about, DNS, if you have long lived applications, the actual DNS answer that you got at the startup of the application that you cached from weeks ago may no longer be the actual right IP address. DNS is more dynamic than it used to be. And we still see many applications that do a DNS lookup at the very beginning of what they do. And for example, to find the IP address of the the database, and then it will stick with that address for the next five years.
1: Yeah, we see that in the telco in the telco world where uh, you're using voice over IP, and you've done a lookup at the start of switching on the the phone system. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously you're using DNS for that some of its other features to do with load balancing and things. And yeah. that IP address has changed because it's down. So yeah, that yeah. that's exactly what you just said
2: okay yeah well that would be my one thing
1: okay and normally when we're doing connection-based programming it's a great practice to have some type of timeout to make sure it's just not sitting there forever is there Mm -hmm. something similar you can do with with DNS to check would that be to look for DNS sec or just if you don't get an answer within a certain time move on or is that handled by the libraries you use
2: yeah, it's typically, actually, it's a good question. It's typically handled by the libraries that you use and very often you also have no control over it. So it's, it's quite It's not typical. something it,
1: I see exposed.
2: No, and it, actually it should be because you cannot just, a, a, a native DNS lookup might take as much as 10 seconds and and you would only hear about it failing maybe after 10 seconds. And, and that can be a big, big downer for any kind of, of performance or failover to a, a secondary thing. But still, there is is no uh, solution for it because a bona fide DNS query can actually just take six seconds to complete. There are important domain names. A famous one was in the nature.com, the the famous science journal. And they had such a convoluted DNS setup that if your uh, name server was not already aware about nature.com, it could easily take like 12 seconds to resolve the nature.com IP address. and and subsequent lookups would be very fast because it would have all the uh, related data in the cache already but there is no guarantee that you will get a DNS uh, answer within any reasonable uh, amount of time which is which is actually one reason why in some of our stuff we personally do not use DNS because we were like yeah I don't know when when I'm gonna get an answer
1: yeah maybe that's the take home from today is to be conscious that DNS can take a while and it's something you should maybe bring into application
2: yeah. And the other thing that, that people could maybe think about is, and that's is uh, DNS records have a time to live. And uh, this time to live is just that says you can cache this answer for one minute or five minutes or one hour or whatever. And these numbers are typically set extremely low. Um, so even though there's no chance of this IP address changing uh, 60 times per hour, we still set the TTL record to 60 seconds because maybe one day we need it. And It turns out that if you take this IP address and you give it a TTL of half an hour or even an hour, then everyone using your stuff just gets better performance. And the downside is that maybe one day you need to change the IP address and uh, it will now take an hour before everyone notices. But I have news for you. Even if you put the TTL on one minute um, and you change it, after one minute, not everyone is using the new IP address. So if there's one thing to look out for, it's ridiculously and needlessly low time to lives on DNS answers and if you upgrade that to an hour or half an hour then everything will just suddenly become snappier for everyone.
1: Oh, mm. Interesting, thank you. Is there anything I
2: missed that you'd like to mention? No, no, I think this was uh, was, was well-rounded and, and we did not get bogged down too much in well visited areas of the DNS over HTTPS discussion.
1: Yeah, I've, I've linked into the show your um, YouTube talk that you did at, um, and I'll Nog last yeah. year. Yeah. that We've one Also LinkedIn, Paul Vixie's one. Also good. EuroBST, yeah. which is really good. So where can people find out more? You've got two Twitter accounts, I think.
2: Yeah, I think the, the, the DNS one is at PowerDNS underscore Bert. And that, that's why I publish most of my uh, DNS uh, related things. Yeah,
1: that's where I follow you and see most of your tweets. Yeah.
2: No, that's probably the best one uh, for uh, if you're interested in DNS.
1: Excellent. Well, Bert, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. This is Gavin Henry for Software Engineering Radio.
2: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening.
0: Developers, take your marks. It's time to upgrade your data platform to InterSystems IRIS. It's time to deliver complex mission-critical applications in the fastest route possible. It's time to use any data from any source. It's time to embed analytics and create interactive user interfaces. So what are you waiting for? Choose your language. Choose your tools. Choose your environment. Collaborate, build faster and deploy more efficiently. Done and done. Tomorrow's next breakthroughs are waiting for you today. InterSystems IRIS Data Platform, the fastest way to build applications. Ready, set, code. Start coding for free. Visit intersystems.com slash try to try iris. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc radio.net. This and all other episodes of SC Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.